Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 23rd, 2015, and this is episode 1650 of the Survival Podcast, and I got a good one for you today. Bill Wilson of Midwest Permaculture is on the line, and we're going to talk about... Well, societal maturity is the title that I chose for today's show. This is going to be a very interesting discussion. Uh, yesterday we talked about permaculture and anarchism, and I know that's not everybody's thing. And today we're going to talk about permaculture again, and I know that's not everybody's thing. And to be honest with you guys, I always want to keep the show moving. I want variety. I want difference. So we're going to take a break from those two subjects for quite a while after this. But I'm going to encourage you to really listen to today's show, even if this isn't your thing, because once again, this might be different than what you would expect. We're going to talk a lot more about... How we interact with each other as human beings today from two people that come at it from a different viewpoint from each other, yet agree on a lot more than they disagree on. And uh, we're going to talk about things that apply to building businesses, etc. as well, too, because Bill built a successful business. Uh, it just so happens to be in permaculture. This is a guy that walked away from a truck driving career and was 53 years old when he did. 53 years old. He spent 13 years driving a truck trying to figure out what he wanted in life. And I think... There's a big message for you guys in that as well. I hear from a lot of you guys, I'm in my late 40s, I'm in my early 50s. You'll even hear that come up in the interview today. Um, you know, like, basically it's too late for me. It's never too late. It's never too late. Think about that at the end of today's show when you hear the closing song, especially the first verse of the today's song at the end of today's show. Before we get into all of that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, the awesome, illustrious Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com, where he'll teach you to make cooking a, a life skill by focusing on technique over recipe. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill, brother, you've never lived on MREs for six months like I have. You get pretty creative in those situations. Being able to cook all the food that we talk about growing for ourselves and sourcing locally is a great way uh, to enhance your quality of life and to save money. If you're not, if you know, if you become a great cook, you're not going out to expensive restaurants. And Chef Keith has a lot of ways to help you do that. He has an awesome podcast. He has a really great YouTube channel. And uh, right now, he's got some of the coolest uh, sauces you'll ever find: pasta sauces and new packaging that makes shipping a lot easier. Things like creamy basil, flame roasted red pepper sun-dried tomato and rosemary. Uh, soon he'll be moving things over to Amazon, but for now just go ahead and check out HarvestEating.com for all of that and more. Remember, Chef Keith will help you make cooking into a life skill. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company. When you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public 
publication at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription and you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, take a look at the uh, year that was the episode, 1650. Alex Strunk has two for us today. We have the unfair business practices of Chinese barbers, and we have Harvard Incorporated. Um, I'll just mention that Harvard starts this year. Harvard University, yes, that Harvard, all the way back in 1650, before this nation was even a nation, before it was really even, really even colonies in some ways. Okay, so anyway, the unfair business practices of Chinese barbers that must go, it must be happening in China, right? No. The first Chinatown in the Americas is in Mexico City. Did you know that? That's why we do these things. You learn things you didn't know. And Chinese barbers have become a source of controversy due to their unfair business practices compared to Spanish barbers. The Chinese work harder, they work longer hours, and they have moved their barbershops downtown to be closer to their customers even though they must pay higher rents. How can anyone expect to compete with that? A special government official is appointed this year to regulate the Chinese. He begins with limiting the number of razors a barbershop can own. This is meant to limit the amount of business a barbershop can handle, but ultimately it's not going to work with people who are willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. <clears throat> My take by Alex Shrug, I lived in Southern California before the Rodney King riots, and I remember the attitude toward Korean businesses in the ghetto areas. The news video media focused on how Korean grocers were preying on the ghetto community by charging higher prices, expecting their employees to work harder and keeping track of their inventory uh, like they might be robbed at any moment, probably because they might be robbed at any moment. They expected their children to be brilliant students, and they sent a considerable amount of money back to South Korea. So when the riots broke out, it was no surprise that they were target of rioters. But the Koreans stood next to their stores while openly carrying guns, If anyone messed with them, they were not afraid to shoot, really. The Koreans didn't wait for the police to protect them. They protected themselves. If it seems like I love the Koreans, well, I do find them admirable. Yeah, I do too, especially those particular, that particular group. Um, it also proves that <clears throat> this, this concept that you hear from people that are enemies of the Second Amendment <clears throat> and the right to self-defense that you know, the, the, the need for the Second Amendment, if it ever did exist, has passed, is, well, bullshit. This was the Second Amendment in action. This was the Second Amendment. And it didn't turn into, you know, riots in the streets and everywhere. Well, there was riots in the streets. But the fact that the Koreans stood by and protected their property, it didn't turn into, like, you know, this huge, you know, spray of bullets everywhere. The rioters went where the property wasn't defended, where the police were supposed to defend it. Which is another lesson. The police will never defend your property the way you will defend your property. It means more to you than it means to them. It's a job to them. It's your it's your stuff to you. I'm just saying. Um, <clears throat> what I also see here is just another example of the market's working too well, so we have to fix that. The government's saying we can't have this. These people are working really hard. People are choosing to do business with them voluntarily. And the only way that anybody else can compete is to do better. We can't have that. We have to limit their, their ability so that these other people can have their livelihoods protected rather than have to adapt their livelihoods to serve their market. 
Um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And on that note, have you noticed that it is the Asian communities that come here as immigrants that tend to work really, really hard, demand more of their children, and get results? It really seems to be that there is an ethic of work there that I think is admirable, but I also think at times it can go too far. But there's times when it's called for. It reminds me of a story of a guy, his name was Lee. I don't remember anybody else's name in this story other than Lee, and it's a very common name, I'm sure, but I do think that's right, that I heard a, a speaker talk about one time, and he said this is what happened, the short version. Lee came to the United States. I believe he was from China. He was either from China or Korea or Cambodia. It might have been Cambodia. And he had an uncle that was already here, and his uncle owned several donut shops. <clears throat> And he basically told Lee, you can run one of my donut shops for me to pay off the loan it took you to get here. So Lee did that and worked long enough for his uncle, basically, for nothing but repaying the debt. <clears throat> and then Lee's uncle said, well, I'll sell you one of the donut shops if you want it, now that you know how it works. So Lee worked night and day, he and his wife, at the donut shop until they earned enough money to buy the donut shop cash outright from his uncle. And at that point, they had a viable business earning an income, and they could have went and got an apartment or something, because while all this was going on, they slept on the floor at the donut shop, and they used the sink to bathe. Yep. But they decided for two more years that they would stay living in the donut shop, in the back of the donut shop. And they lived there for two more years, and they saved every penny they earned. And then they went out, and they bought their first house for cash money. All in all, that took five years. Five years, and this is during you know the, the exodus, the war years. It was Vietnam. I think that's actually what it was. It was Vietnam. Uh, so this is right after the Vietnamese War. So this was people with nothing, that came here with nothing, that just happened to have a relative here that gave them a crack, a, a little chance, a little opportunity, and, and that's what he did with it. And this, this gentleman ended up being a very wealthy person, uh, owning a great deal of real estate. Uh, and I'm sure resented by a lot of people because he looked different than they did. Uh, think about that, though, how much that permeates our society. We resent people that work harder than us. And we should, and we should admire them, and we should strive to be more like them. And we should try to marry that with <clears throat> how can we work harder, do more, and get more done, and help others. There's going to be a lot of that in our discussion today with Bill Wilson. Before that, just want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. If you love this show, you want to support the work we do Join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. And with that, I'm ready to get into the main topic of today's show. We're going to talk about a bunch of things with Bill Wilson at Midwest Permaculture, how he got started in business, how he found his path, how he's made his business successful. We are going to talk about what Bill calls the four fires of group work and how to make a success out of a team. And a lot of other really great stuff. And we're also going to talk about things like I just talked about. Why resenting others is probably not beneficial to ourselves. And with that, I want to say, hey, Bill, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you, Jack. Good to be here. Hey, I'm glad to have you on. It's been a long time since we had you on. So there's probably a lot of people in the TSP audience that have no idea who you are. <laughs> and uh, you are the founder of a company called Midwest Permaculture. And you're one of the... People that when people ask me where would where would you say I, I go for a PDC I'd say well this is one place you definitely could go uh, so obviously you have my highest endorsement I love the work you're doing but a lot of people here have no idea who you are or what you do or how you got into it and your background like many of us in this world you didn't start out here you started out in like a completely different place so could you kind of just give people the backstory how did you end up as a permaculturist and what did you do before that 
Yeah, sure. That, let me give you the, um, the quick version of that. I kind of woke up around 21, 22 years of age and realized that there's something wrong in Virginia City. I started looking at the culture and seeing some real challenges. Now, in, in just about anywhere you turn, there's uh, a lot of deception and and uh, a lot of damage going on uh, just uh, to the planet and to each other. And so I, I just ate for there to be a way that people could live harmoniously on the planet, caring for one another, but, you know, also caring for creation, caring for the actual planet itself. And uh, the longer I looked at it, the more depressed I got because I couldn't see an answer. Uh, no matter where you went, it just required too much technology, too much money. Um, you know, there just didn't seem to be a, a good answer. And I also felt I had some work to do in my life and I couldn't find my work. So I figured if I made a million dollars, I could stop working and then uh, figure out what I need to do for, you know, for, with my life. So I started my own business at 21 or 22. And by the time I was 40, I'd had a dozen businesses and I was I had just about as much money as I had when I started 20 years earlier. So I had made some money, but I'd lost some money. And at age 40, I kind of short-circuited and I said, well, obviously, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I can't figure out my work. So I need time to think. I need time to be left alone. And the only thing I could think to do, because in the industries I'd been in and I, I knew some truck drivers, I said, I need to drive a truck. I just want to drive you know, from the middle of the night, drive all night long, nobody talking to me, nothing I got to do, just sit and think and think and think. So that's what I did. My wife thought I had kind of gone off the deep end, but I drove a semi truck. It took me 10 years to figure out what my life's work was. So from age 40 to age 50, uh, at age 50, it, I figured it out. And uh, then it took me a few years to get out of the truck. So I was a truck driver for uh, 13 years. And basically getting out of the truck was about, um, I had taken a permaculture design course right around then, and it pretty much blew my mind. And all of a sudden there was the path. There is a way for humans to live on this planet, not only in such a way that we don't damage it, but we can live on this planet in such a way we leave it in better and better condition. Every successive generation that lands on this planet could actually leave it in better condition for the next generation. And we can still support the population that's on the planet today. But that's, what, that's what the permaculture course taught me. And that was a mind blower for me. Yeah, that, that, I think that happens for a lot of people. That's why the, the PDC is pushed so hard. It's not because it's a, a big income source to me, to the enlightened teacher. It's because this is the only way I can get you to really understand what I'm talking about. This is the only way I can get you to really understand when you ask all these questions, because this is what you hear from people that kind of are looking from the outside, don't you, Bill? Like, can you really do this? Or is this possible? Or can it work everywhere? Or it's only for dry lands, or it's only for the tropics. Or it's, whenever you hear that, like, you're like, there's so much I need you to understand so that you would have the answers to your own questions, and I can't give that to you in a 30-minute response. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It's um, It really is taking a look at the world and the way it works and taking off all the filters that we have uh, in our front of our eyes from the cultural experience we've had. And actually, you know, one of the first principles of permaculture is observe. Observe and interact. Observe what's actually going on. And in the process of observation, we begin to see how systems are stacked together in nature and how when we work with that system, we can create incredibly productive systems. And we can do it without any kind of uh, you know, synthetic chemicals or anything else like that. We literally can do it from the ground up. But it starts with the soil and it starts with intention. The only thing blocking us 
from healing this planet and actually creating it, you know, turning into a Garden of Eden is our willingness and desire to do so. Uh, but the, the 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 ability to do it is there. And when I start a design course, you know, I have students sitting there saying, "Okay, Bill, you better you're gonna have to show me." You know, even after they've done their webinars and everything, they come in and they just say, "I want to believe it's possible," but there just seems like it's too too difficult. And by the time we get done with the design course, I bring up the exact same questions again, and every single student says, "Yep, it's possible. Yep, it's possible. Yep, it's possible." Because they're working out in their head how they would do it if they could. That's right. That's right. They see we they see enough examples and practical approaches. Um, it's very very obvious once you see it through this lens. So I mean that's and that's why I do this work, Jack. I mean it's just um, it's so gratifying. So we started Midwest Permaculture because Becky and I, my wife, we couldn't find a permaculture course in the Midwest in the early two hundred or two thousands, and so we invited a teacher in from uh, California. Uh, um, David Bloom, he's uh, the author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas, and that's his real love, is, alcohol, is uh, converting vegetative matter into alcohol. But uh, that was the course that I took, and when I came out of that, I told Becky, I said, this is it, honey, this, this is the work. This is the way that we can talk about all the things we're passionate about, which is creating a sustainable community, which is really what we're after, and permaculture are the tools to build that authentic and sustainable community. Very cool. Now, before we go forward, there's something that you hit on there that I, because I, I hear from people in the audience all the time that want to make a big switch in their life, but they're they're very intimidated about doing it. And guess guess what age group they fall into, Bill? Uh, Late forties, early fifties. It's like yep, they've had it. That are like, you know, it seems too late for me. I, I, you know, I have a job and I can barely pay my bills and it seems too late for me to make that switch. But you just told us that's exactly when you made that switch. Yeah, well, so remember, like from the time I was 20 to the time I was 40, I'd had a variety of businesses. So, you know, I've always just been someone that um, I just would rather work for myself. You know, I just I just know I could figure out how to do it and do it as well. And I've had some jobs, but um, so I've had some experience in what it takes to set up a business. And then my wife also has good business experience and a good business head. So this and the fact that Midwest Permaculture exists is not just because we, you know, somehow opened the door at the right time or something. There's a lot of skill involved in running a business and setting it up and, you know, thinking through all the things. Think about the learning curve you've been through, Jack, in the mm -hmm. last years. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, yeah. it's just, it. you know, to, yeah, I tell people that to, to run a successful permaculture operation uh, or to run a successful business, you have to be competent in about two dozen different areas. Not necessarily all the same for every application, but you've got to be pretty good at a variety of things. And um, it's, I'd say it's like, it's like conducting an orchestra. You know, you don't have to be able to play the piccolo and the violin and every, you don't have to play every instrument perfectly, but you gotta know how those instruments are built. You gotta know what they do, how they fit in, and then pull this whole thing together. So it's not impossible, and businesses can be small, and sometimes you luck out. But it takes um, it took a lot of investment on our part. We mortgaged our house basically, borrowed fifty grand. Uh, we went in the hole, fifty grand. We had very little to work with, and we worked sun up to sundown for four years. Yeah, I didn't even know how to do email, Jack, when I got out of the truck. <laughs> and now I build that whole website. Midwest well, that's true, because the time the frame you got in and out, it was when all that stuff happened, right? And right. You know, they weren't throwing laptops in, in, in trucks back then anyway. Now they all have them, but at that's that time, yeah. 
That's correct. Yeah. You, you know, though, the thing is, you bring up a very good point. It's a skill. Any skill can be learned. Mm -hmm. um, and then the mistakes are what leads you forward. So, like, I'm doing a workshop next weekend here on my property for four days. And even though we have all these different classes built into it, the property walk is pretty much going to be, and I screwed this up. And I screwed this up, and I screwed this up, and I should have done this first, and this yep. was a mistake, and this tree doesn't grow here. It will never grow here. This one's alive anyway, but we're not putting any more in because I'm not into killing trees of this kind anymore. And I, I think like people need to give themselves permission to fail. As long as you fail in, in, in bites and bunches and little pieces instead of wholesale. As long as you can make the totality sustainable, then the little failures actually tweak the totality and eventually – You get to success. And, you know, people look at my business with TSP and go, well, that's an overnight success. I'm like, well, if, an over, if overnight's three years, yeah, sure it is, right? And, and, and by the way, you weren't bumping into me at 3 a.m. when I was coming downstairs to prep my show for the next day. Yeah. So overnight, three years of how many hours a day in addition to a full-time job? And that's, that's what it takes. But I, I guess my point of even asking you that question was I don't want people to feel like it's too late for them. Because as long as you can fog a mirror, you can still make a difference. That's the way I look at it. I want to I wanna definitely echo what you're saying there. I really want to encourage people to know that there is a way. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves. And we have to, you know, we can't just blow our, we, we can't bullshit our way into, I don't know if I can say bullshit or not. You can. Um, okay, good. Trust me, you uh, can. <laughs> yeah, you can't bullshit your way into this and have a successful business. At some point, You've got to be reliable. You've got to think through the details. You have to stick with your word. You have to, people need to know that they can count on you. You have to follow through. And that just requires paying attention. And, and, you know, I don't know when was the last time I just sat down and watched TV. You know, it just doesn't happen. There just is no time. I'm going from the time I get up in the morning, which is usually before the sun gets up. And I usually don't stop until, you know, until it's time to go to bed. And, yeah. Uh, and it, but I do break up the day with a lot of really enjoyable moments. I have a great time. You know, I have a couple. I'm two of my youngest sons uh, live in our community, so I see them on a regular basis. My wife and I enjoy meals together some of the time. You know, and there's things to do in our community. And so, you know, I, I break it up. But I'm. But I. Uh, it's part of who I am now. And there, I don't. I haven't been to work now in I don't know, 13 years, I guess. But I'm busy all the time, and I love what I'm doing, so it just doesn't feel like work anymore. Honestly, But listen, we just paid off that $50,000 hole best. last Christmas. That's, that's great. You know. So we're, you know, we're out of the hole. And, and we decided uh, Midwest Permaculture was, we thought, let's bring permaculture to the Midwest since there was hardly anything going on back in 2004. And uh, when we started, uh, I got two really good teachers to, to start us out. Mark Shepard and uh, Wayne Weissman were our lead teachers Uh, for our first dozen courses or so, um, and even and and even longer than that, Wayne uh, probably up to two dozen. I knew about Wayne. I didn't know Mark worked with you early on. That's awesome. He's a great guy. Yeah, absolutely, and he knows his stuff, and uh, he's got great energy. And I mean, this was before Mark had ever taught a permaculture course. Huh. Uh, Wayne had been uh, uh, certified, or what do you call it, uh, recognized by Bill Mollison as being a legitimate teacher. And so I asked the two of them to teach together because I thought they're. Their energy uh, really complemented each other, and they, they did a, a really good job. But the more I got into it and the more that I taught and uh, Becky taught, we realized that we had a skill in teaching as well. These guys are brilliant, but they have their, you know, an approach that they have to teaching. And as we started adding more things to the program, 
um, students really warmed up to the, a lot of the ways that we taught and the things that we did, and I just knew that I needed to to do this full time myself. So, um, did you hit the ground right from the beginning with a with a true business plan, or did that kind of evolve over time? Yeah, not really. The business plan was let's try to stay alive for three more months. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there it really wasn't a business plan. Even to this day, this is a little different, I think, than than some ways that people approach businesses. But uh, Becky and I are a little more, I would say, intuitive, and we always are asking the deeper question: What do we really need to be doing, and what's really needed and wanted in the world, and what is it that we can provide and provide well? And so um, we're still, you know, we're still asking those questions. But uh, we've gotten really good at um, delivering really powerful design cores. At least, at least I think so, and our students think so. So I mean, that's you know that's all I can compare. And um, now we've got. Uh, I think we're doing next week. We'll be doing our 58th permaculture design course in 10 years, nine years. Wow. We have about 1,200 uh, students now, graduates. And I still think that next course is going to be the best course. Every course I do, there's always I'm always looking for better ways to improve it. So uh, they're they're pretty wonderful experiences for for everybody, and including myself. You know, you're doing something right when at the at the long at the end of a really long training, you feel as good or more energized than you did going in. <laughs> I, I always try to judge my my classes. We don't generally do PDCs here. I just don't have the mental bandwidth or the ability to shut the show down for two weeks to do it. Um, Sure. So we do, you know, four day workshops, three day workshops. But when all of my students are like hauling ass off the property, talking about what they're going to do when they get home, yep, that was a good workshop. That's it. That's exactly they it. They can't wait to get home and do something. That's when I'm like, yes, we did this right. You know, that's 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 how I measure it too. Do they go home and do something? And that's what's really rewarding. And then we also keep for every design course, we have like a networking forum where they can all stay in touch with each other privately. And so now I can monitor those or I mean chime in, you know, and so we can keep track and they can share the results with their friends and their, their new acquaintances and stuff. So that's the re- most rewarding thing is seeing people integrate this and they just they start to own it and they just they go the way they go. Now, now the viability of the business, though, I mean, we can we can say stuff like that is true, that what the students do is what it's all about. But in the end, we have to keep the business viable. What, what do you really think is the attribution to your, your success? How did, how did it actually become successful? And, and what's like your balance between education and design consulting? Okay. Yeah. Great question. Um, by far, the, 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 the purpose of the business is education. The purpose, Becky and I, our goal is to make permaculture or to, to do our part to make permaculture a household term. And, and not just a word that people recognize, but they even understand it enough to know that it's worth considering and looking at. So, um, so we have a lot of work ahead of us, but you know, you're doing a huge amount of work in that regards. And Jeff and all kinds of people are doing great work. And, you know, it's showing up in mainstream now, which is, it just didn't even exist 10 or 12 years ago. So that is the work. And, um, and, uh, to make it profitable, uh, we had to stay focused on delivering the design course. It's a tangible, definable item. In any business, you have to say, what is my product or what are my products, and then make it very clear on your website. And that's the second reason we're successful. It's the website. Make it very clear what it is you offer, why you're offering it, what a student can expect from it, and what's the price. 
and um, and just putting it all, just being really honest right out there, put it the way it is, and pay attention to the website, be in communication, and don't, you know, our website is not over the top. There's no lots of things scrolling and moving and, you know, it's we're not a high-tech website, but um, we attract the people that really uh, resonate to who we are, and those, those are the ones that show up to our course. That that's awesome, and you. But you do do consulting as well. Yeah, so that came up because we're doing a lot of teaching, and as soon as you have a bunch of students that say, "Well, my gosh, this was amazing. Can you help me design my property?" Even though they went through our course, a lot of times people learn what they don't know. Mm. So, um, so they ask for additional help, and then people see our website and they see what we're doing, and maybe they'll listen to you know some of my interviews that I've done. You know, I haven't done a lot, but there's a few things on the internet. And uh, they just resonate to who Becky and I are, and so they'll call us and say, "Hey, I'd really like you to design this. I just I like what I, way, I like the way you think. I like the way you communicate. I know I'll get a fair shake from you if you uh, help me design my property." Most of the design work we've done in terms of quantity has just been, you know, walking somebody's site. These are what I sure. call walkabouts and just shooting from the, from the hip. You do an analysis ahead of time. I do my homework. I find out what the soils are probably like and, you know, everything, the climate and wind and that kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, take a look at their property, get contour information. So when I show up, I pretty much kind of know what's going on and where the likely places that where they might place things. And then as soon as I get on the property, I can walk around and usually in two, two to three hours, my gosh, they get so much for so little, uh, saving them years of tr- trial and oh, <laughs> problems the in the days. And, <laughs> the yeah. pain is it saved and yeah. the expense in that pain is, is massive for what a good consultant does. Yeah. And I also think there's a bit of the, the lack of like, what I call the lack of surgeon attitude, right? So, like, if you look at doctors, usually the most arrogant doctors you'll ever meet are surgeons, right? At least in their practice of their their skill, and they need it. Because a surgeon does what needs to be done with a, a disconnection, where, like, a general practice doctor... If they're good, they should not, not be walking into the room backwards and, and using a chart. They should be engaging with the patient. But the surgeon has the patient on the table and has to cut something out that normally you wouldn't cut out or risk a lot. But they do it and they get it done because they have confidence in their skill set. Yeah. If you put that surgeon's child on the table, what happens? <laughs> it, it deflates, right? That arrogance just – I you know generally most surgeons would not want to perform life-risking therapy on their child. Yeah. Well, that's how we view our land. So a lot of times, even though you've given a, a person a great education, they they get locked up when they look at their own property where you can take them to their neighbor's property and go, oh, put this there. You can do swells here, catch that hard catch but there, push that over there, put a rain guardian over there. There's your zone one. There's your, And they could just do it, but you put them on their own property, especially for like their first design, and man, they get hung up. <laughs> but when you walk them through it, all of a sudden, they start coming up with great additions to your, your kind of your mainframe design. Yeah, exactly. It's like anything else. It just takes practice. And that's, I mean, that first first few times, let's say probably the first six to eight times I went out and uh, did a walkabout or some light design work for people, I just felt so inadequate. I felt like everything I knew, I just forgot. You know, I walk up and I feel like I don't even know. I don't know nothing. You know, I don't, what the heck am I doing here, you know? But as soon as you start looking at the land and you start going back to your train, well, wait a minute. Now, I know where water's flowing here. I know what's going on here. Oh, yeah, look at the shade here. I mean, it comes to you. 
And, yeah. uh, you know, after I'd done, done a dozen of these things, I thought, well, golly, I'm kind of getting the hang of this thing, you know? Well, that's how you play a musical instrument. Remember the first time you picked up a violin or a clarinet or something? Oh, my God, the sound is awful. But you practice for six to eight or 12 weeks, and all of a sudden you start actually making music. So it's the same thing with design. It's just uh, just doing it over and over. And that's been the pleasure of teaching design courses, Jack, because one of the things we do, we invite people to bring everything they got about their land with them. And then we take time during the course to lay out all their stuff and let them brainstorm their own project with other students. And so I get to look over the shoulders and work and consult with everybody in the room as they're going through that process. So my design skills improve. I can see more, I, you know, just by teaching the courses and looking at students' own projects. Very so you know, your confidence increases. You get a little better. I still think I'm a, kind of a newbie. You know, I think uh, uh, I think I do an okay design, you know, but I know I'm going to be doing a lot better designs in 10 years. I'm still learning. Every single project I touch, I'm still learning, and I love it. What, are, I, your, what are your thoughts on one of Jeff Lawton's comments he, he made that was, if you're a good designer – the more restrictions you end up having to deal with, the more elegant your design becomes. Hmm. And in this case, he was talking about trying to cram one more pond into the last place on a little five-acre property and dealing with a bureaucrat that said, if you catch that water from that catchment, it has to leave in the same catchment. And the solution ended up being a couple of sandbags. And it was like, <laughs> when he was done and the bureaucrat came back, they basically gave up. They didn't even understand what happened. They just knew that it worked. And what his, what his point was is when you, if I give you a blank slate, you, you can't really grab onto it. You know, you, you, you got too many options with yeah. more restrictions. Then the more you have to, to, to take the, the ethics and make sure that you're not violating those. And the more you have to look at what the land will allow you to do, what the space will allow you to do. And it, I guess it's kind of like when you think about if you watch those shows on tiny houses, right? Like what they do in those is amazing because they have to. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. When you're limited, when you've got restrictions and you have to, it's like you know you got to deal with the climate, you got to deal with your landform. You can't change those things. It's the scale of permanence. There are certain things you just can't change. You design around those things, and um, you know things on the property or restrictions or zoning. Those are things you maybe just can't change, and you have to work around them. So. Yeah, it, and oftentimes it uh, it it'll just re, it'll dictate how the design is going to come out anyway because you just by the time you work around this this and that well there's only one obvious solution left and uh, so it does make it kind of simple. I like that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was one of the most profound things I've ever heard any permaculture teacher say. I was like, wow, you know, because I had yeah. just moved to this property where I can pretty much do anything I want, but the restrictions are it's got like rock everywhere. Right. So then it was like, I got to design around that. But I started making mistakes, honestly, because I had no restrictions. Right. Like yes. I knew and I was teaching my students when you get a new property, walk out design zone one first. Don't even touch anything else. Walk out. Look at the first square foot design that. Yeah. And then I'm out putting hugel beds on the back end of the property. And, and it's yeah. like, you know what to do, but you, you get excited and you're finally able to cut loose and you just want to try everything at once. <laughs> but that simple methodical approach works and it ends up in a property that feeds you before you try to feed anybody else with it. And you're back to the prime directive at that point. Yeah, that's it. And, and these designs absolutely evolve. Um, we just don't even do master designs anymore. It's just, there's no point in it. 
because uh, uh, it's pro- important to do what I call framework designs, mm. which is get the water right, get the zones right, get get the basic elements figured out. But a master plan that includes a lot of particulars, um, it's just not necessary. It will not be followed that way. As you as you put the uh, as you do the work and as you lay things in, you learn about the land, you learn about microclimates, you learn about so many features, and you just and then not only that, the client they just flat out change their mind. Yeah, I don't want that there. I want to do this instead. So we don't spend. Uh, I don't waste people's money uh, doing great big designs. I do framework designs, and um, which are a whole lot less expensive, and then then they're ready to go. And then either they need more training or they hire us to help them implement it or they find somebody else and or they, they learn the skills. And yeah. They- yeah. I mean, I'm mean, hearing my own mistakes again. I remember sitting down with a plot of a swell line and, and, and designing in every single tree. What's the yeah, variety yeah. it would be and everything. And like <laughs> half of them died. <laughs> and now, I, you know, I, I actually have a deal with Bob Wells where I get trees in return for his advertising so i get a shipment of trees every year and wherever a tree died i just stick another tree in there i mean that's what i've gotten down to i just put another tree in there and sooner or later i'll find one that lives and you know it would have been better if i was a little more methodical like i just admitted and and did it smaller scale out but now it is what it is the you know the earthworks are in it's there the irrigation's there so this tree didn't make it, yank. In fact, don't even yank it. Cut it off, leave the roots in, bam, another tree goes in. And then I think back to all those hours of drawing in, you know, like coded diagrams and stuff going, what a, what a freaking waste. Really? I mean, I think if you're doing an urban design on a, on a, a 20th of an acre and you're going to sheet mulch everything and, 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 and love on everything like it's all zone one, you can probably get away with that. But as soon as you get bigger than that, forget about it. Just, just make sure that it makes sense and it and hit the ground. You, you hit the nail on the head, Jack. It's just, it's one of these things that you, you just have to do this stuff for a while and just move into it. Don't be afraid. Don't be timid. Just try some things. Get some things down. You learn so much from doing that. But I've seen so many people paralyzed by getting the design just right. And they consider themselves expert kind of permaculture designers. I've met a few like that. And they lay out this stuff and they've got hours and hours and hours of, you know, all these plants and all of, you know, that kind of stuff. And, it, I just know it will not show up on the, on the landscape that way. Not because they didn't do a good job of design, but just because there's a long time between here, you know, and putting in uh, certain elements of the design. And there are just too many things that are going to change. A, so a term, I, I'd rather help people get started and get going and get the framework in. A term that's been going around a lot in the permaculture circles is rewilding. And I really love that term because it applies to both landscapes and human beings. Like we've lost, we become domesticated and we've lost that wild interaction. But what you're talking about there kind of like speaks to that. Like you can't impose your will with pretty design upon a wild system. And what we're trying to do is design a designed wild system. Which, which can be done, but if we try to design it to the point where we impose the design on the land, then what happens is it's no longer wild. We're trying to domesticate nature, and nature's like, you know what? I don't think so. Yeah. It just isn't going to happen. It's a little bit like putting a McMansion, you know, on yeah. the land. It's just like, it's just over-designed, and it's just not necessary, and it's a huge amount of work. I mean, labor to there get it. There is a place for those people, though. It's all the public works that you and I don't want to do. Yeah, that's all funny. those people that you, when you when you submit it to the city or the county, they want to see all that stuff. And even though it's never going to work out that way, you'll never get the budgetary approval without it. And God bless those people that can do it because I can't do, I can't deal 
would I did it one time in Montana and I wanted to kill myself by the end of it. <laughs> you know, I really did. It had nothing to do with the design team I was working with. It was all about trying to appease nine different stakeholders who all wanted to go nine different directions, all wanted to know exactly what was going to go in every spot. It's like it's not by the time we were done with it, I felt like it wasn't even permaculture anymore. It was yep. it was a park with some fruit trees. Yep. You know, and I'm like, this that's it for me. I'm done. Because and, and I understand bureaucrats can't get the head around we don't know yet. Well, I think um, you opened the door here, Jack, just to, to um, you know, make the observation, the comment that there's a lot of room in permaculture for all kinds of energy and activity. And God bless us. We there are people that have the mindset that can take an urban environment and really do the good job of laying it out and making it look really professional. And we need to have that. Uh, we need people doing permaculture in the hospital. You know, we need permaculture is an approach. It's an idea. It's a way of being in integrity with life and with others. And so we need people in business. We need people, lawyers, all practicing permaculture uh, ethics and principles. So it needs to go everywhere. And uh, when you and I think about permaculture, since you and I are comfortable with the getting on the ground and getting on the land, um, that we, we tend to focus on that. But permaculture is a lot bigger than that. It's it's everything we're going to need to create to create permanent culture. And that means we got to be thinking ethically no matter where we put our energy in our culture. It, it, business to government. It also, when people get into permaculture, I find that pretty quickly they start to realize there's a lot of self-sufficiency, self-reliance in it. Even if they didn't come to it for that reason, they start to become empowered. And a natural thing is to tend toward... I want to do what, what build it, or I want to do eject it. I want to go make this part of my livelihood. So do you think it's really possible for many others to make their living practicing permaculture? And if so, what skills do people need to have to do that? Well, you know, I'm going to fall back to uh, uh, Patrick Whitefield uh, from the UK who passed away earlier this year. But he said it's not really a question about um, if it's possible. The answer is really, or the, the, the point is, is it's the only possibility. <laughs> it, it, I don't care what we call it. You know, we're using this word permaculture, but I don't, it does, it's not about the word. But we have got to create ethical systems, you know, in government and in business and in, in um, providing services. We have to have a sense of ethic needs to show up in this. And we kind of think that in our culture, hey, if you can get away with it and it's considered legal, who gives a crap? You know, we, we can go ahead and do whatever we want. It's legal. You know, let's go ahead and destroy this thing over here. Let's go ahead and, you know, uh, uh, hurt these people over there just because it's legal and it's legitimate. Hey, I got, I got my rights. But permaculture asks us to create systems that are ethically based that care for people and planet. All right. And that somehow we create some kind of an equitable sharing system. It doesn't mean everybody gets exactly the same amount. You know, there are people who are experts and skilled and they need to be compensated. And there are people that are just beginning and they need to be starting at the beginning. But we need to close the huge gap that we have between the haves and the have-nots. So that's what permaculture talks about there in fair share. And so that's what I, that's what melts my butter about permaculture. It's not just about what we do on the land. It's all the way up to the, your relationship with your neighbors, to the relationship you have to your doctor, to the relationship you have to the grocery store you shop in, all the way up the line to the relationship you have with your government. Or so, your God, for that matter. 
So, so I'd like to have, actually have a, a short conversation anyway about that kind of metamorphosis that the third ethic went through and, and kind of how that happened. And so the, the original ethic and the ethic that I learned when I first got into permaculture and the, the ethic that was in the original PDM, if I remember right, if not permaculture one, was setting limits to population and consumption, yeah. which can be expressed as a fair share. You can only take so much from a system before you destroy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could also be dis- explained as a return of surplus, which means that if we take stuff from a system, some of it has to go back in to keep it sustainable. As a business owner, you know that. And mm-hmm. then there was this this alteration that David Holgram did in his book, and it became parroted by everybody in the social justice movement, and I say that with air quotes, um, about redistribution of surplus. And I, ha- I have to be honest. I-, I had a bad view of David for a long time because of that. Until I found out he was an anarchist. And then I went, that can't possibly mean then what, what the people keep saying it, think it means. Right. That it has to have this type of a, of a, of a community based autonomous central, you know, network rather than this centralized system where no matter how we distribute or reinvest or set limits to how much we take, that it's all about the people that are involved in interacting and participating. It's not a justification to say, hey, look, we'll just take the stuff people have in California and give it to the people in Arkansas because the people in Arkansas have left. That there was this, you know, it all starts with that prime directive, taking responsibility first for myself and my children, and then those ethics guide me through that process. And it kind of changed my view of David, and I see him now as, as, like, it honestly tainted me to the point where I was angry at David Holgram, even though he'd never done anything to me. (laughs) <laughs> and now I see him every bit as, as 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 much a teacher to me as Bill is because I understand what he's saying. I think there's a lot of times where you might disagree with a teacher, but it's because you don't even know what they're saying. You think you know what they're saying because you're looking at it through the lens of your past baggage, I guess. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The whole point of that ethic is just to create a system that is um, ethically based. It's not ethical to take and give things to people and making them incredibly dependent upon society. They need to have skills. It needs to, I mean, our society are, is so you know, tainted, you know, it's so screwed up, it's so unbalanced that it's really going to take a, a lot to unravel the, uh, the, the unfairness, you might say, that shows up. But there comes a point where every individual needs to take responsibility for their life, and they need to know that that is the crux of being alive on the planet. That's the crux of being human. There's this, um, you know, the quote by um, Henry David Thoreau, he says, you know, when one advances confidently in the direction of their own dreams and they endeavor to live a life which they have imagined, they meet with success unexpected and in common hours. Well, this process of, of finding out, well, what do I want? Who am I? What is it that I have to contribute to this world and this culture? Instead of just being an unconscious sponge, asking the deeper question, what is my gift? What is it that I'm here to provide? And when we start stepping into our power, we start stepping into, I'm going to find a way to be of service. I'm going to find a way to give back. I'm going to find a way to contribute. Then you've got a system set up where um, that person grows, that person evolves, that person becomes uh, a supporting member of the society and the culture, and um, and you got a, and you got a culture that'll work. But there there is a point where um, you know people do need food, shelter, and clothing too. You know, Christ said, "Feed the feed the hungry, feed the 
you know, clothe the clothe the naked. So I don't know what the balance is, Jack. All yeah, I, is I mean, but the, the, like the response to that to me would be, well, well, Jesus said for you to feed the the, the naked. He didn't say for you to feed the naked with my stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> my stuff to take my stuff and give it to them, right? Like so you do it, right? So I think that's like that that like so we're kind of hitting on another crux that I have as a as a an issue I'm trying to influence in a positive way inside permaculture, which is this belief by some people that are drawn to this movement that. The human being is the problem, right? We are we are like a virus on the planet. And my response to people, if you really feel that way, find a tall building, make sure nobody's below you, and jump, right? Because yeah. if you're the problem, then the best thing you can do for the world is kill yourself. I, I And I don't really mean that. I say that with a, a little tongue-in-cheek, but the reality is I feel like human beings are the solution. We are the only species that can consciously create life with intention on this planet. There may be some other place in the universe where beings can do that, but in our known universe, as far as living things in our our minds that we know of, we are the only species that can say, this is a desert and I will transform it. And as long if we're going to do that, then we have to stop this this concept of we're the problem. We have to start asking the question, how are we the solution? In other words, I think our technology grew faster than our morality. And, and, and now it's time to say, okay, the technology grew. Let's let the morality catch up with the technology and use the technology to to fix the damage that we've done. Because I honestly believe if you wiped human beings off the planet right now, it would take a long time before the situation corrected itself. We've done such damage that we have like this obligation now to fix shit. Yep. Yeah, and I think it's really not a moral question, Jack, because um, that gets kind of tricky Sure, use that word. I really prefer to use the word of uh, maturity. I look at our culture Interesting. like um, really like we're about, about seventh graders. We're like junior high school kids, you know, just the whole culture. All right. Just imagine the whole culture being still in seventh grade, you know, emotionally, maturity wise. And so we're just kind of, hey, let's go to this event. Let's go do that. You know, hey, no, my parents aren't home. Everybody come over to my house. The doors are open. The stereo's on. The video games are on. We're drinking the booze. The refrigerator door is open. The furnace is on. Very we're good. Just, we're just children. As a culture, we're unconscious children just consuming and partying. And really what life is asking us to do at this time is to just step into the next greater experience of ourselves, which is stepping into adulthood, which is, hey, the door's open and the furnace is on. Close Let's it. close the door. Let's close the refrigerator door. Do we really need to consume all this alcohol? Why am I doing all this? Yeah. You know, you know so now it's just stepping into maturity. It's stepping into owning our own relationship with creation, our relationship with each other, ourselves, and with creation itself. Thank so I think you. I think that's the the key that, I, that I'm really excited about. Thank you, because that's going to help. That right there, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to use that in my teaching because morality isn't the right word for that. Because the seventh grade kids are basically moral, right? Unless they're you know have been conditioned by society not to be, but they don't have discipline yet. They haven't matured into a, a level of self restraint yet. And if it happens to be that like your uncle let you stay for the weekend at his sick house while he's out of town on vacation, which he's recently happened here, the 18-year-old is going to have a party, bring the friends over, and, 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 and make a mess. Yeah. But, but when you got when the, when the same people get together when they're 30, they might even still behave that way, sort of, 
like you said, they close the door, and at the end of the night, everybody picks their stuff up and throws it away. At least they don't leave you know everything laying all around the house like they did at a teenage party. And and that's what I think it is. So like the the technology we evolved over the last couple hundred years is the equivalent of your rich uncle giving you his sick pad for a couple weeks to hang out and party when you're 15 years old with no restraint. And, yeah. and we need to grow the hell up is what you're saying and realize the value of what we've been given. Bingo. That's exactly right. Yeah, I'm still in that. I'm claiming it as my own. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I don't no, care who claims no, it. I'll, I'll, credit, I'll credit you with it. I always do. I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, Jack, we're all stealing stuff from each other. I don't even know where I get this stuff. I just, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time in that truck. I turned my truck into what I call, you know, for better lack of a better word, a, a rolling sanctuary. It was my it was my man cave, right? Yeah. And I had a decent stereo in there, and I just started consuming books on tape and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I'd be, you know, and some of it was just history, you know, and just, um, you know, how things work. But a lot of it was metaphysical kinds of stuff and community stuff. And I'm just interested in how people work and how they put this stuff together. And that was really, I mean, I could get an idea and I turn off the tape and I think about that thing for an hour or two hours, just really work that stuff. I'd even miss my exits. You know, I go right past my exit because I'm so engrossed in thinking about these ideas. You're describing how the podcast started because when I did the same thing, I would start talking out loud and said, well, maybe somebody listen if I recorded this crap. <laughs> I did the same thing because I was in sales. I traveled, you know, I'd be on the road eight hours a day sometimes. And it was, it was kind of cool. It was like your own little educational studio, right? You could learn there and you could develop and you could process your thoughts. I think there's a, a, a type of therapy that goes on there. That's what it was for me. It was really important that I had that. And I'm a slow learner too. And that's why, you know, it took me 10 years, but uh, the stuff that I figured out or I learned it's been pretty profound in the way it's adjusted the way I think and the way I approach life. And uh, consequently, um, I think that's what students are responding to in our courses. Not only they're getting all the how-tos with the permaculture and, you know, swales and key lining and, you know, we're doing a lot of this stuff ourselves. So they're really getting a good education on how to do this. But throughout the course of a week, when you, when you meet with people day in and day out and the communication is always as clear as it can be, as always as honest as it can be, you're creating an environment that people hunger for, and they respond to that. You know, I tell people about, you know, some of the challenges I've had in my own personal life, and, you know, I don't go into big detail, but I'm pretty vulnerable. I'm pretty open about the challenges and how I overcame them and, and why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. And people open up in the courses as well, and it's, it's an experience that they have after that week of being connected with people. And it's many of them say it's the most powerful thing of the training for them was to realize that in one week, you know, we do our courses over eight days because we have the, uh, the webinar series ahead. But they say in that eight days, they said, I've never felt this close to this many people in such a short period of time. And it's somewhat of an artificial environment because obviously we're creating this environment for people to learn in. But as I tell them when they leave the course, I say, now, you know, what you experienced here, I know two weeks from now it's going to seem like um, a dream. Well, of course, you had a good time. You got eight tree huggers. I mean, you, you get uh, you know, 15, 20 tree huggers together for a whole week, and it's going to be a love fest, you know, and they're just going to yeah. prove on each other. But I said, um, you know, I tell them, I said, you know, the, the, in truth, I said, what you experienced here this week was real. This is each other getting together to look at how do we live on this planet in such a way that we literally can heal the desert. We can leave this planet in better condition than when we arrived. I say this was real. 
what you're going to do when you go home, you're going back into the world that is mostly an artificial construct of whatever it is we decided to create unconsciously, mostly. Most of what we live in our culture today is very artificial and very temporary. The world is going to be very different 100 years from now. It's very different 100 years ago. It's just a temporary construct. And what we want to do is anchor reality into the temporary construct. And that's what permaculture does, and that's what I love about it. It just asks the question, what is and how does it work? You know, I'm glad you made that turn there in that little soliloquy because when you started out, you said like it's not, it's, it's an artificial bubble that you create for the PDC, but I, I don't think so. I think it's a, it's a reality bubble. It's how human beings, if given the opportunity to hear each other, to think, think through things and to come together with a common goal, this is how humans naturally behave toward each other, assuming that their basic hierarchy of needs are met. And, and it's everything around us that's the illusion, and it's, it's an illusion that's used for control. And yeah. that control illusion requires massive extraction for it to be kept up. And it's like, so, like, if you think of, like, Star Trek with the holodeck, right? Like, that's what this is, and that's why we suck so much from the planet. And I don't mean that we, you know, we suck because we're not good. I mean, we literally suck, though the pun is interesting. You know, but that's why we suck so much, because we have to keep this holodeck running. That, that creates this grand illusion of separateness and I'm different and wilderness lives over there and I live here in a town and those two things are different and there's no possible way human beings can be part of wilderness as though we're an invasive species. I, I, I look at it this way. I'm just as native to this planet as every other living creature on it. Period. And that means I need to, I need to fit within my ecological niche not outside of it in some artificial bubble. And it's that artificial bubble that sucks the resource at the level that it does to maintain it. Yep. And as an individual, too, um, you know, you say, I mean, I want to find my niche in uh, the natural world and, and extract what I need from that. And you want to be sure you leave it in better conditions so that it's easier for your children to get what they need. And they want to leave it in better conditions so it's easier for their children to extract what they need. So that's what permaculture does is how do we create these systems that are self-replicating and continue to improve? And I love Bill Mollison's comment about how we really don't know what the limits to yield are because we really haven't been that conscious about designing for a long time. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at some of these systems that are going in and things that people are doing, uh, particularly like with mob grazing and the kind of yields they're getting out of consciously moving livestock on the landscape. It's pretty mind boggling. And uh, the work that uh, the fellow is doing up at Miracle Farms in Canada, um, Stefan, um, anyway, he's got a really great uh, guild system, orchard guild system going, really productive. The stuff is starting to show up. Get Steven, Stefan Sobakayak. Yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's oh, he's a great guy. I love him. He's been yeah. on the show a couple of times. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, he's. Awesome. Yeah, we don't. I don't think we do know. And you like mentioned mob grazing. I we could go down a whole rabbit hole there, but I I don't even think we're scratching the surface on what can be stacked into that yet. Like we have right. no idea because we never did it before. Well, we did do it before, but all the people that did died and didn't pass it on. And then the <laughs> agricultural revolution came along, and we screwed that up too. So. Yep. Nobody in, in living history has ever done what we're doing now. And that's, that's kind of cool that we're doing something that no living person, you know, no, nobody in living history ever did the way we're doing it. And it's actually returning to the system that it's coming from. There is no true extraction in a mod grazing system once you get to the point where the herd is self reproductive. Once that happens, 
literally nothing that's not surplus comes out of that system. Everything that's there stays or, or increases. And, and that's, that's exactly why we're told this can't work because you can't do that, right? You have to dig up, you know, minerals somewhere else and, and, and drag them halfway across the world to get this to work. Well, you know, we, none of us would be here if that was true because the human race would have died out before we had a chance to do what we do now. <laughs> Good point. We'd all be dead. Um, I want to go on to something else though, because you mentioned like that we are all copying and parroting other people. It makes me think of the Nirvana song, We're All Beatles or something like that was in it. It's kind of a cool song from the 90s. But you've told me that you honor Bill Mulliston in your design course, in your curriculum. Like your PDC is basically set up around the core original that Bill conceived of, which I think is awesome. But you've also done more. You've added things. You've brought in things on what you call the invisible structure. How people can work together. And so can you tell us more about how you fit more into the curriculum and how you feel you're still honoring Bill's PDC, original PDC? Yeah. Well, in Bill's writings, he said the, the PDC that he laid out, he said this is the beginning. And he says future generations of permaculture teachers, we have the responsibility to evolve uh, the PDC curriculum. But um, but I don't know how you can improve a lot of it in terms of the heart and soul of each of the chapters and the intention behind it. You've got to talk about, you know, scale of permanence. You've got to talk about soils. We've got to talk about trees and plants and their interaction. We've got to look at different climates. We've got to look at energy. So I don't see how you can change a whole lot and make it a whole lot better. But how many people need to know what a trauma is? Um, or how to work on, on an altol, you know, or what a hydraulic ram is. These are things that are in Bill Mollison's design course that, you know, 99.9% .9 of the people that take a PDC with me are never going to use those things, ever. And I'll let people look them up what they are. So what I've done is I've taken out those things that I just know are not relevant to today, and I added the, the added things that are breaking technology or breaking ways of doing things. So there's a whole, you know, we do a whole thing on mob grazing, which wasn't in Bill Mollison's course. And um, because of that fact, I do a piece on energy that isn't in the design course, but it's mind-blowing uh, when you're looking at uh, downdraft gasification or just wood gasification and turning wood into current sunlight into power and then generating biochar out of that as well. So I add these elements that help um, deepen the immediate solution right now um, for people and uh, while still honoring the major blocks that uh, Bill uh, uh, outlined. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. And I think that you're doing the same thing anyway. So like when I, I remember, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but Bill and Jeff did a PDC where they put all on video years and years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, as long as their history goes, I, Jeff told me, I, and I, did, I had no idea of this, it was the first time they ever actually taught one together that that was on, on video. And Bill had started to drift a little by that point, I think. And some of it, like I have to admit, I fast-forwarded a little bit on Bill here and there, but the stuff on the trombone and, and, and other technologies like that that you mentioned, I never saw that as well. I'm supposed to go out and build one, though if I had the right environment, I probably would. What yeah. I saw that was is you think this won't work. Well, and then he just hits you. That was what I loved about Bill. He would just hit you with like a hundred things and you were convinced 90 of them can't possibly be true. And then you'd spend the next four weeks of your life trying to disprove one of them and you couldn't do it. And, yeah. and, and, and that is that, um, 
that transformative component of a PDC. The the same thing the military does in a much, I think, um, psychologically better way. But what the military taught me was there's all these things that you think you cannot do. Bullshit. You can. Yeah. And that's why people come out of the military and they're successful in business because there's it, it, it's you know a, it, it's a mission. It's not. It's you know you're gonna do it. You're just gonna figure out how. And I think that that creates that kind of mission centered vision in people's mind. Well, if we can do all this, then what else could we do? And what you've said is, well, here's the things we could do that are more modern. Here's here's the here's the the modern equivalent to that. And I think it would still have the same unlocking potential in in the student's mind because you hear objections to biochar. Well, all biochar does is waste biomatter. Well, if I can make energy and biochar, <laughs> right now, well, that's just a function stacking thing at that point, and it, it makes perfect sense. But it's also like, well, if the symptoms are that simple, then then maybe we need to be looking, uh, you know, uh, or the solutions are that simple. We need to be looking more intently to find more of them. And that's what we're asking our students to do. Go forth and find the solution, right? Go forth and turn the problem into the solution. Or was it, I don't remember if it was Bill or Jeff that said, you know, the solutions to most of our problems are embarrassingly simple. Yeah, yeah Bill, Bill's been credited with that, that the, uh, even though the challenges before us seem incredibly complex or increasingly complex, the solutions remain embarrassingly simple and I, I absolutely agree and that's that's exactly what I do and in the course is we have enough examples of really powerful solutions that even though most people won't use those um, they are available in our culture today and people can now begin to know I know it's possible they can't in other words they can't watch a Monsanto com commercial anymore and just say the only way through is ge uh, genetically modified engineering or more chemicals they know it's a lot And so um, you have to you have to lay out the path for them, and uh, some of the things are pretty mind blowing, and they'll never use them, but they know it's possible, and they'll never be, no one can ever convince them otherwise. Now, well, and it may not be possible for the individual to initiate, but it's it's always one individual that so that's what I try to tell everybody that listens to my show. We cover a million issues, but that's so that we have variety and entertainment and information and education. But in the end, if you want to make a difference. You can't make a difference on a million things. You pick one or two and you lock onto it and you go do that. And so you have no idea which one of, you know, you say, well, my, you know, my students are going to go home and set up this, you know, biochar, gasification, electrical generator, but one of them might. And that's all it takes is one person that's that right. leads an initiative that attracts a team that builds a company. And next thing you know, it's across the country. And, and that is, that is the essence of true you know, capitalism in its best form is that someone takes something like that and says, we're going to make this work and then proves that it can be done. And, and a lot of times all it takes is that person becoming aware this can happen. This does work. And then that person dedicates their life to making it work in a way that makes it reproducible so that the average person can use it. Because there's really no reason why, especially let's say small scale farms, couldn't be producing almost all of their electrical needs from that one technology, right. especially in certain biomes. Maybe down here a little tougher, but in the Midwest where you are, where you can grow trees like crazy, there, there's no reason you couldn't be doing that. Yeah, and especially if the trees you're putting in are a lot of fruit and nut trees and support species, you put in the support, uh, support species, you're planning on taking those out in six to ten years anyway, And so the system's going to automatically generate a surplus of woody material. 
And uh, especially like hazelnut, you know, well, if you got to coppice those every eight years, 10 sure. years. So, so why not put in species that are producing for you at the same time, you know, they're going to generate a certain amount of biomass and that becomes your source of energy. But it may take you 10 years to get there. You don't want to grow a forest and then clear cut the whole thing down. That's not the purpose of this. But if we're going to transform uh, a lot of agriculture and go from wide open spaces to putting in food systems, uh, food forests, you know, forest gardens, we're going to end up with a surplus of biomass and woody material. And that's what we can use for generating electricity, small amounts. I just did a design course at the uh, Dancing Rabbit Eco Village over in northern uh, Missouri uh, three weeks ago. And what's really the thing they've done there is uh, they've made a commitment to use 90% less energy than the average American household. And so here's this community, small community, 60 people or so. They built a lot of their own homes, and they have made it. They are literally using 90% less energy than the average American household. But they have lights. They have heat in the wintertime. Uh, they have comfort. Um, now, air conditioning, that's a stretch. But they have uh, they have several earth-banked homes, and you go into those, and it, it flat, flat, it's just cool. You know, 93 degrees outside, and it's cool in these earth-banked homes. So it's just design. It's just designing uh, systems that just don't require that much energy. That, that, that makes perfect sense. And the, the, the thing with the biomass, like, we don't even realize what's, what's possible there with what we call waste. Right, so the yield of a good, well-managed acre of pecan trees at 12 to 14 years of age in the Texas area where I live is about one ton per acre of shelled nuts. We also get a ton, or, or yeah, one ton per acre of shells. That's right. That's a ton per acre of just surplus. Yeah. Because I don't know about you, but I, I love pecans. I don't eat pecan shells. <laughs> just not you mentioned hazelnuts about I'd say it's probably a third of the weight of a hazelnut is shell mm-hmm. and and those are great biomass products they're very hard they're, they're, there's a lot of energy embodiment in those oh gosh yes mm-hmm. walnuts is another one you walnut shell I, I bet a walnut the shell weighs more than a nut probably I'm so gonna go out on a limb and black walnut I'm sure of it because I spent way too much time beating on those on an oak plank with a hole in it because my grandfather said it would work and laughed at me uh, <laughs> those are tough I mean but they are. You really got to like black walnut to go through that. You know, we, we've talked a lot here about mechanical stuff and business stuff and, and on the ground stuff, but we haven't really talked a lot about more of that invisible structure, uh, the community oriented stuff. You said, have said to me before that most permaculture projects fail. It's rarely because of the design piece. It's almost always the people piece. And yeah. you were kind of talked about four fires of group work. You want to talk about that? Yeah, well, if uh, if we have time, let me. Um, I'd be happy just to express that. It's you know I've lived in this little town uh, in the northern Illinois, northeast Illinois. It's called Stell, and it started as an intentional community in the early '70s. And I, I showed up um, about '78, so um, maybe five or six years after it had uh, gotten established. And it and it was not a religious community, but it was you know a highly philosophical. And kind of utopian in its view, like, you know, we can do a better job, you know, we can build a better world. But um, it's funny thing about when you get together with people with community, when there's a strong, compelling vision, people are willing to set their pettiness aside and say, you know, or their just their little um, unhappinesses, let's say. They'll set those aside for a common goal and for the common good, and they'll put a lot of energy and effort into things. 
But when you work with people day in and day out, you know, the vision pulls us in and we, you know, the vision is compelling. But we discover that how we're going to get there, the decision on how we're going to get there, that requires a lot of discussion. And when you have a lot of people discussing the best way to do things, guess what? You got a lot of differences of opinion. And if you go back to the example I said, as a culture, I think for the most part, we're, for our emotional maturity, we had locked in at about seventh grade. So we're still 12 year olds emotionally. So, you know, you say something mean to me, well, then I'm not going to like you. You know, I'm not going to be nice to you. I'm going to tell everybody what a creep you are because you said something mean to me, right? Well, that's called seventh grade. Well, you know, we're still there at an emotional level. When we, somebody says something at a meeting and it, we feel angry. We say that person made me feel angry. That person screwed up. That person is, is a, is a nutcase, right? Now they might be, but in reality, if we're, if we're responding emotionally to something, we blame them for how we're feeling. When in reality, we're generating that energy or that emotion in ourselves. So when you get people together and they start locking horns, uh, things start to fall apart really fast. And so uh, that's what happened in our community, and it lasted about 10 years. So since 1982, our town has been an open town. Anybody can live there. There's streets, there's houses. They don't go away when people go away, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a water and sewer treatment plant, and uh, we've got a wind generator that helps uh, get our fresh water. So it's no longer an intentional community, but there are some of us that live there with intention. And as a result... You know, Becky and I and our family, we experience a high level of community within this community that's not an intentional community. So I'd say out of 100 people that live in our town, there's about 30 or 40 people that are interested in community, 30 or 40 that are interested in just like living in a nice, clean place, and then about 20 people that don't even know they live in a community. They just go to work, (laughs) come home, you know, just watch TV or whatever. Um, but it's pretty amazing what, you know, 20, 30 people can do when they're really interested in becoming a little more conscious about how they live and how they communicate and, um, and, uh, and how you solve problems. And so that's really been the education for me as I've kind of grown up from being a seventh grader to now I think I'm more like a sophomore junior <laughs> high school. <clears throat> that's, that's interesting. Uh, you know, the other thing though is with, you know, permaculture projects failing due to human interaction, I think you've just described every entrepreneur's dilemma, uh, with, with business in general. When you, when you want to grow a business beyond what you can personally do or what you and one trusted partner or family member can do and you, and, because I don't like the problem, I do exactly what you today. You know, my wife and I are this business, and we don't have employees. But you have to start branching out and having to grow a business beyond a certain point. You have to start involving others, and that's where the breakdown is. And it's a balance of how can I, how can I build this enterprise or this community or whatever in a way where everybody that's involved feels like their voice is heard, feels like they're part of it, feels like what we're doing is important, feel like it matters, feel like they're justly compensated, feel, doesn't feel like somebody else is, 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 is pulling everybody else down or you know skating for free. And it, it, it's very challenging, but what I've noticed it, when we, we also do an exercise that we call leading conscious discussions where we just sit everybody around and we give them a scenario, okay, all of you are on an island. You're not getting off, right? You either survive together or you die. Now, how would we run things? And like, no one knew that question was coming when you ask it. And the, the rules to the conversation are when you don't know what to say next, you shut up. And whoever you think should be talking, just look at them. And anybody that looks like they want to say, everybody just look at them and wait. And you get solution, 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 conflict, 
discussion, resolution, solution, like that. I mean, it just goes so fast because people are put into a position where, okay, we're expected to find a solution. And it, it, But how do you take that kind of magic and then make it last in the real world, so to speak? It's, it's difficult. Well, it is. It's... Um it, it, it's just to like Bill Mollison's quote, you know, it seems complex. The solution, though, is still very simple. And that is, is that as individuals, we have to pony up and own our own emotional response to things. Just for example, I remember I, I, there was a period of time where I was commuting on a regular basis. And, and once, um, you know, I knew as long as I left the house at a certain time, I'd always get on the, on the on-ramp, right? And I get to work and I get there two minutes early and I'd be able to punch in, you know, whatever. And um, I remember, you know, several times, you know, I'm, I'm running a little bit late, but I can make it, you know. And you get on the on the on ramp, and as you're coming down the ramp, the traffic is backed up. Now it's never backed up. I mean, I'm out in the middle of nowhere, you know. It shouldn't be backed up, but it is. So I mean, I lay that out in our course, and I ask the students, I said, well, how how do you feel? You know, and most people say, well, I'd be frustrated and angry. Traffic, you know, shouldn't be like that, right? <laughs> So, and I say, now, so who created the anger that you're experiencing? I guess it was the traffic, right? Because the traffic got up early in the morning and it said, you know, Bill's going to be late today. Tell you what, let's do. Right before he gets home, <laughs> let's back up. It will really piss this guy off, right? <laughs> but the point is, traffic doesn't care. You know, traffic just doesn't know, you know, but we get angry at the traffic. So this is this idea that when we have emotional things show up in our lives, we project it outside of ourselves. And I, the reason I'm angry is because of that or you. And that's just not true. In permaculture, we ask the question, what is and how does it work? Permaculture, there are no sacred cows. We just ask, how does this thing get put together? And in the, when it comes down to people and the way that we relate to one another, we generate the emotional drama in our own life. It comes out of us. And that's the biggest thing we got to get. So like when you go and you have a meeting and there's all kinds of stuff going on and I feel upset, I'm now able to say, wow, I'm really impatient. I really don't like what that person is saying, but it ain't their fault. I'm creating the anger within myself with that person. Because listen, Jack, you know damn well you say one thing, right? You just, you're doing your show, you say something. Yeah. You get responses. This person, I'm really pissed off at you because you did such and such. Yeah. Because you said this one thing. The next person says, Jack, that's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. I'm so inspired. The next person calls in or, or writes in and says, I couldn't believe when you said that. I started crying. I'm so upset. You know, Are another you person says, emails? It's funny. <laughs> Right? You say one thing, yeah. and you've got four or five different emotional responses. Where the hell? Are you that powerful? No. All that it's the individual's perception of what I said. And it's also it also speaks sometimes, and I, I've had to learn this and mature over the years myself, with, with not taking it personally, that it, it's what I talked about earlier with David Holgram. I vehemently disagreed with what he was saying because I didn't know what he was saying. Yeah. Right. So if I actually knew what he was saying, I would have completely agreed with it from the beginning. And I have to realize, and we all have to realize as teachers, they're going to have students challenging us, and that's completely okay. First of all, they might be right. You might be wrong. But second of all, that's my job as a teacher to challenge you, to make you sure of what you think you're sure of, and then make you have that one little aching freaking question in the back of your mind. Is that son of a bitch right? Is yeah. he right about this? And then, okay, I know what I'll do. To make that go away, I'll prove him wrong. 
And either they will, and great, and maybe they'll come back to me and prove my, me wrong, so I won't be wrong anymore. Or they'll prove it is not wrong, and therefore the only logical correct is that, well, it's true. And then they evolve. So the teacher and the student co-evolve in their walk when, when that openness is there. But you're right. If I'm just angry at it because you said it and it created my response that I'm angry at and I'm blaming you for it, that can't happen. Yeah, and then when we get angry, all kinds of communication shuts down, and you know some people move. We all deal with anger differently, but some some people will move into a very toxic situation where they become very aggressive, and you know they they've learned that if they over aggress if they're if they're more active or more aggressive than the person that they're upset about, that they can get ahead or get their way or whatever it is. It, it creates really a lot of unfortunate and unhappy situations, but it, it always comes down to this point that we. We project that we think other people are making us a certain way, and it's it's just not true. If it was true, then that'd be great, you know. We could just go fix that person or get rid of that person, and then I don't have to be upset anymore. But if you get rid of that person, I guarantee you, somebody else is going to come along and press that button on your chest because it's not them. If you look at every person as just being traffic, Jack, how could you be anything less or different than Jack Spirko? I can't. You are who you are. I can't. I mean, and that's everybody else is just who they are. They're just all traffic. And then I walk into the world, and that person makes me happy. That person makes me angry. That person makes me happy, uh, sick. That person makes me want to cry. Yeah. Who's wagging the tail here? That's called seventh grade. When we grow up, we realize we are the captain of our ship. We are the one. It's not wrong to respond emotionally to people in all these ways. But it's wrong to project it onto them. We have to own it for ourselves. And when we own that emotional response to ourselves, we actually begin to grow. We actually begin to become more loving, more compassionate, more understanding, more patient. And that's just the way it works. What does permaculture ask? How does it work? Right? What yep. is it? How does it work? And that's how it works. When you own your own emotional drama, you end up growing up. And now you're easier to work with. People like to work with you. People want to play with you. They want you on their team. You know, but and they like also give your the places where they disagree with you now because they realize the value you have, and that that's how we get along is we realize each other's value. So you and I don't agree on everything. That's okay. If we did, we would there'd be no purpose to both of us. Exactly. Right? You might as well just smash us together, and make us one thing, and 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 then we would use half the resources and say the same stuff, right? So yes. we have to be have to make room for the disagreements with each other. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I think that you also start to realize as you do what you're saying is you're giving the person that's upset you too much power in, in two totally different ways. One, you're letting them negatively impact your life. And there's no way that Jack Spirico should be able to negatively impact Bill Wilson's life unless I'm actually at your house poking you in the face while you're trying to work. Then I'm actually doing it. Otherwise, you've given me too much power. But the other way is you think I'm more important than I am, and that's why you give a damn that I don't agree with you. Like, When really, it doesn't matter that I don't agree with you. And what I mean by that is like, so I came out last year basically and said in, in the, the, the election that was going on, there's no reason for me to vote. I'm not going to waste my time, right? Uh -oh. And I had people telling me it was people like me that are the reason that Barack Obama's president. Uh -huh. And I'm going, wow, are you putting me way above my pay grade? I mean – First of all, you're assuming I would have voted for your guy, and I may or may not have, but that doesn't matter, right? Like, but you're you're already making a, a vast assumption that had I participated, right, that I would have done everything that you think is the right thing to do. So that's that's probably wrong. But the other thing is, I, I, 
I'm not the guy that put anybody in any political office. There's not a single elected official in the district that I would vote in that, that didn't win or lose by a huge majority. I didn't matter. But I had, Bill, I can't tell you. And you may disagree with me on the importance of voting or not, but you're not going to be like vehemently pissed off at me for choosing not to. I had people vehemently pissed off because I chose not to vote and blaming me for things that I couldn't influence one way or the other. And that's giving a person or a voice way too much power because they're a teacher or a business person or on a radio or on a podcast. And we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't give away our power to people, even if we agree with them most of the time, or even if we like what they do, we have to keep our own personal power or we have nothing to give to the world. Yeah, that's it. That's called, it's called seventh grade. You know, it's like, you know, you have a group of girls and somebody wears pink, you know, and you say, oh, my God, I can't believe she's wearing pink. She's a whore, you know, or whatever. And they, <laughs> they they ignore her for the rest of the day. Or you decide to, you know, that's it. I'm not playing football anymore. You know, you, so you leave the team. And all the guys are really pissed off at you because you left the team, right? You let us down, man. Yeah, that's right. right. You let so, us down. Come on. It's called seventh grade. And, yeah. uh, and that's where we are as a culture. And so we have to evolve. That's part of creating permanent culture is we've got to, we've got to emotionally expand. We've got to grow. And, you know, think about where you were at when you started your business, Jack, and how you've stepped into it and that you're passionate about it and you put it out there. You take the slings, you take the arrows. Are you a stronger person emotionally today than you were four or five years ago? I'm a stronger person today than I ever was at any point in my life. Yeah. And me right? too. And this yeah. is the transformative experience that made that happen. I, I and I, I'll tell you what people don't realize: it's it's the the greater the the the, the negative number of your give a shit factor, the the more power you have. Like I really don't care if you don't like me. I would like that you did. I would like to help you. I would like to work with you. But if you really just don't like me, I don't care. I don't. You know, it, it gets I care. You don't. You don't have time anymore, Jack. I don't have time to care. That's you don't have time to care whether they like you or not. You have so much work to do, and you're doing your work. You're passionate about what you're doing, and that is all that life is asking of you. What is your contribution? That's what everybody else should be doing. And if they're listening to you, and somehow their emotional stability is dependent upon you uh, thinking a certain way or being a certain way, they're screwed. They are. They the majority are in of the population. <laughs> That's the majority of the population. There, let me tell you this really cute story. This is the story that really woke me up to this ability to understand your own emotional drama. Um, it's it's a simple story. It's about the monk and the master. Uh, they go to the marketplace early one morning, and there's some commotion in the marketplace. Some some something terrible happens, and all of a sudden there's wailing and screaming, and people are running around, and people are crying, and you know, and the monk is plugged in. He's looking at this situation. Oh my God, this is terrible, and he's getting all upset. And he happens to look over at the master, and the master has this kind of calm look about him, this repose, a concerned look, but relatively calm. And everybody else is running around with their heads chopped off. And finally, the situation resolves itself. It kind of ends. And the monk and the master come home. And all day long, the monk is asking, oh, my God, how does the master do this? How can he stand there, observe that situation, and remain present and calm? And finally, he goes to the master and says, master, how is it you were able to do that in the marketplace? How were you able to maintain your sense of center and your calmness? 
And the monk and the master goes, what do you mean? He says, I was furious. I was really upset. I That was so unfair that happened. I'm so sorry for this person. It was terrible. I hated it. But master, I looked over at you and you had this look of calm on uh, about you. And, he, and the master goes, oh, you mean that? Well, he says, let me ask you, you know, three days from now, are you still going to be upset about what happened in the marketplace today? And the monk goes, well... No, I'll probably have something else to be upset about. You know, no, no, because that'll be in the past. That'll be three days. No, I'm not going to be upset three days from now. And the monk, and the master says, well, look, I thought deeply about this when I was younger. And I thought, you know, when you're upset, it takes a lot of energy to maintain upsetness, right? I don't know if you've, uh, Dorothy, have ever had an argument, but Becky and I call it trying to outsnark <laughs> one another. Yeah. You know, how he says, you know, you get really cold. You know, she says something, I just really get upset. Okay, I'm not going to speak to her. I'm going to just clamp up, you know, and she's going to know I'm really angry, you know. Then she says something really pisses me off. And, you know, so you try to outsnark one another. It takes a lot of energy to hold that um, kind of hostility towards one another. And fortunately, life shows up and, you know, things are more important than that. And finally, it goes away. But, um so the, so the master says, you know, it takes a lot of energy to be upset. So I decided, why should I be upset for three days? I'm just going to be upset for two days. And then for one day, I'm not going to be upset. I'm going to move back into being present, what's needed and wanted in the world, and just be, be, be available. And the more I thought about it, I said, why should I even be upset for two days? Why don't I just be upset for one day? And then for two days, <laughs> I can move back into love. I can move back into being present in the world. And as I thought about that even deeper, I thought, why even a whole day? Why not just an hour? He says, actually, he says, today in the marketplace, I was completely and fully upset for a moment. And then I moved back into love. I moved back into what's needed and wanted in this situation. Is there a way we can be of service? There was nothing for us to do today in that situation. And so we came home. Now, we all have that ability to own our emotional responses to everything. And it takes time and it takes practice. But that is what emotional maturity is. So now when I go to a meeting and someone goes off on the same old community thing, the same old whining and complaining, up comes my anger, up comes my short-temperedness, and then I see it in myself. And I think about who that person is and why they continue to say that. And I actually move from anger to a sense of compassion and saying, I wonder why they keep bringing this up. You know, they must not really feel heard. And I might go to them later and say, tell me more about this. What's going on? Why does this keep coming up for you? Why is it, hasn't it been resolved? That's how this is. That's how this works. This is how we move into more permanent cultures. And that's, I think that's every bit as important work. And that's why I say when we have our permaculture design projects coming together, uh, we can do some brilliant design work. But if it's going to include a group of people, it's not going to be the design that was at fault and that falls apart. It's going to be because the individuals involved really didn't have the maturity to learn how to get along with one another. Yeah, I a lot from, from in, in the Montana thing, as much as I wanted to, to blow my brains out by the time it was over with, the, the guy that led that design was Dave Jackie. And one of the things I really picked up on him, from him was the term social design consideration, right? So that as we were designing this, we had to think about the fact that this park was sitting in the middle of these neighborhoods, this kind of crossroads, 
and that even though we looked at it as like this barren field with a few lilac bushes in the center of it, that that was what those people had had for 20 years, and we were touching their thing. Yeah. That every single one of those people that were going to be part of that community after we went away needed to be considered in that design. How would they enter and exit? How would this interfere with their life? How would this improve their life? Would they understand the improvement in their life, et cetera? And it's 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 a very important component of design, and that's when I talk about how permaculture design can be used to design a business that has nothing to do with what we think of as permaculture. Right. No trees, no bushes, no gardens, no anything. That piece is one of the huge parts of it that you actually have to consider when I make a change, how does that affect everybody in, that, that operates in this business? And that doesn't mean you throw away like basic rules of business. Like if my business is going to go bankrupt, If I don't lay off 10% of my staff, then I have to figure out how to lay off 10% of my staff. That's the way that I can. But it doesn't mean that I just go, well, because I can increase profits, I'm going to lay off 10% of my staff. Mm -hmm. I have to balance, like, the people care quotient. And, okay, fine, if I just, if I just coldly lay off 10% of my staff, what messages, what, what messages does that send to the 90% of my staff that I keep? Yeah. You know, and I've been, I've been faced with that where I went, I went into a group of guys that had 10 people working in a department that I was told to take money out of the department out of salaries, one way or the other, however I wanted to. Cut salaries by 10%, get rid of 10% of the people, and I basically sat everybody out and said, this is how it works. Um, everybody in here makes a different salary. You guys know that you're in different positions, what have you. Uh, some of you are incentive-based, some of you are not. I got to cut 10%, which probably means two to three people to do that. Or we can all take a 10% pay cut till we get through this. It's up to you. What do you guys want me to do? And boy, talk about chilly quiet. It was quiet, <laughs> right? And yeah. somebody said to me, well, are you going to take a 10% cut? I said, for me to make this work, I'm going to take a 20% cut. I need all of you to take a 10% cut. Then it got really freaking quiet. Wow. Everybody started looking at each other thinking, well, is it going to be me? And the decision eventually was I went back and said, here's the plan. Take the money out of everybody's salary till we get through this period. But, boy, there was loyalty after that, not just to me, because that's not useful to each other. And, like, that doesn't happen if you don't consider that social design. Like, I had to think about it, because I actually had some people that I could have went, you know, we could survive without them, and we probably could do more without them in the short term. But what is what does it do to the people that are left there? You know, he just got rid of those people, so that means I'm expendable too. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's that's really good leadership, Jack. Those are those these are the kinds of skills we need. You know, this is what we have to do in order to create this thing. And uh, we we live in a, in a culture that somehow has missed the value and the and the and the joys and the gems of co-creating things together as a team. Uh, you know, you and I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much a rugged individual as myself. I sure like to be able to make decisions in the middle of the night and just put them into motion. But a lot of the work we're moving into in the future is going to require working with people. And I'll have to say that some of the most meaningful times in my life has been when I've worked with groups of people and I've done things. So, you know, it's, it's really how we wired, Jack. We, we've got, uh, you think about the human experience and how long, you know, if you, I don't, you know, whether you want to believe it's, you know, six or seven thousand years or, you know, two million years that human experience has been around. But regardless, how long were we hunters and gatherers compared to the agricultural process, you know, where we started agriculture? And, you know, hunters and gatherers is what it was about, you know, with a little bit of kind of farming tucked into it. Um, 
I mean, so I, if human existence was a 24-hour day, that agriculture has been the last five minutes. That's about right. I mean, that, that's, that's how I'd put that out there. So as, as hunters and gatherers, we were tribal. You know, there were clans or tribes or large families or whatever, and we counted on one another, and we relied on one another. Everybody had value in our community because everybody had to pull their weight in order for us to create, to have survival and to have a high quality of life to you know, to the extent that we were able to create that in those different situations. And so it's wired in us to want to work together. It's wired in us to cooperate, to adapt, to care for others. You know, you, you love your wife, you love your children, you love, you know, I mean, and you'll go to the end of the world to, to care for them. Well, imagine as you develop closer, you also have some pretty close friendships and you would go to the mat for them. So imagine as that circle gets larger and larger and everybody cares about each other that way, all of a sudden, You've got, a, you've got an organism that can really create stability, security, and abundance. You know, you get, two, you get two dozen people together who are really care about one another, know how to communicate, and really are, are looking out for one another. You got your back covered. You're covering their back. That, that's, what, how, can you, how can you experience a better quality of life than that? Well, but, I think we yeah. have to come down to that. Numerically, to make this all work, like we have to start operating in groups that are small town tribal sized groups again without having so much influence over people that are, you know, a, a thousand miles away. Because I think the human mind can only form that tight of a bond with so many people before you kind of run out of the bandwidth mentally to know everybody. You know, I think the average person could probably know well 150 to 200 people. On that yeah. first name basis where you know who their kids are, you know where they live, you know what their history is, that type of thing. And that was that tight band, that hunter-gatherer band were groups of, you know, 12 to a couple hundred at most. And then the bands had relationships between each other. And, and then tribalism rose to statism and we had slavery and wars and kind of that's where it all went down. Where tribal warfare is actually very, very self-limiting, Right. You can only do that crap before you know for so long before either one size wins or everybody gets tired of people dying. And <laughs> and unlike a war we have at this point, where you know uh, think of World War Two, sixteen thousand men died on Hiroshima in, in a couple days, and mm -hmm. yeah, the nation mourns for that. But unless you know one of those sixteen thousand men, it's just a, another number. Yeah. But when it's Dan or Tom or Becky or Bill or Jack or Dorothy. Now it's different, right? So war becomes limiting when we all know the people that are going to die or sacrifice or suffer. It's it, it, it on a totally different quotient. And we've lost that with too much centralization and too becoming too big, you know? Like you said, we have technology uh, of a, a PhD and, a, and a, a maturity level of a seventh grader. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and we've developed this culture. I mean, it just for it somehow it made uh, economic sense to somebody that if you divide everybody up into individual houses, now everybody has to have a washer and a dryer and all that kind of stuff. That's good for the economy. It's hell for on the planet. But, yeah. but it was also hell on relationships. Just like, you know, let's go back just two generations and three generations. You know, our parent, grandparents and great grandparents knew how to grow food, how to build their houses, how to heat themselves. I mean, they knew how to take care of their, their needs. You know, well, how many people know how to do that today? Mm. Oh, my God. I mean, we are the we are the most 
we are the we are the most unskilled group of people who've ever lived on the planet. We don't know how to take care of ourselves. Yeah. And so somehow... At a time when we should know more, because you can find out how to do anything in five seconds on YouTube. Bingo. (laughs) So the time when information and knowledge is the most available, we've become the most inept. Yeah, and that's what's changing, and that's what inspires... I'm thinking that's what inspires you, it's what inspires me. Uh, It's why Bill Mollison and David did the work that they did. They just said, we have got to find a way to do this differently, and... And I, you know what, when I was a kid, I was a, a Boy Scout, and I remember as a younger Scout, whenever we'd show up at the campground, our Scout leader would say, you know, as we go, oh, everybody's piling out of the cars, he'd say, wait, everybody, we're going to walk the campsite together, everybody walk around, hold hands, or, you know, just separate. I want you to, he says, I want you to take a good look at this campsite, because when we leave on Sunday afternoon, we are going to leave this place in better condition than when we arrived. And I'm convinced that's all that permaculture is asking of us to do. And that is, imagine if every human, every wave of every generation that came down upon this planet, you know, the first objective is to wake up and realize you're actually living in a miracle. You're actually able to be conscious of the miracle of life in front of you. And if you're missing that, oh, my God, you're missing so much. You know, you're sound asleep. But the second thing is, you know, enjoy life. But second thing is, Leave the planet in better condition than when you arrived. And that's it. That was the only rules. You know, Bill, what's really interesting about that is there's people out there that I know right now are thinking, well, that's easy to say, but all these people all over the place are screwing everything up. Okay, great. Then I got good news for anybody that wants to do what you just said. All you have to do is worry about yourself and a little bit of what other people do fixing it. And that's what you can do. That's what you can do, right? So you have this, we have this, like, this is what I was saying yesterday. I was talking about basically the concept of working outside of the system with an anarchist philosophy. Stop worrying about everything wrong that everybody else is doing and start asking of yourself, what can I do right? And that, because that's, that's that circle of concern, circle of influence thing, right? Most people have been misled, and I believe that people in like you say, somebody figured out it makes economic sense. Yeah, well, the people making the money figured out it made economic sense, right? So the, 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 those people persist on this this illusion that you actually control things that you don't. And as long as you think you control what you don't, we talked about it earlier with being mad at me because of my opinion or mad at you because of your opinion, right? And if you're focused on that or what some politician's going to do that's in some district you can't even vote in or whatever, right? Then then all you're doing is taking all that energy and applying it to places where it doesn't do anything. It's like driving a car with bald tires, right, that's like a beat-up old Plymouth Volari with a whole bunch of baggage on the roof. And the car won't even go because the ball tires are slipping in the sand. Well, the first thing I got to do is throw the freaking baggage off the roof, right? Now the ball tires at least get traction. I can get moving. Now I can get somewhere. Then I can afford some new tires. So maybe yes. I get good used tires and throw them on the car. And eventually maybe I can upgrade to like a Chevy Cavalier or something like that. And sooner or later, I'm hauling ass down the road in a Maserati. And the one problem I have is you have a whole bunch of people going, look at why, why, why don't you slow down with us? And to me, it's like, I want to teach you how to do that. I want you to jettison all this crap and focus on what, you know, what you can do. Because one person can do so much more than we've been led to believe. And I think that's the biggest deception. That, that like, what you do doesn't matter. I've been saying this since the beginning. What you do matters so much as long as you, you do it in a way that matters. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. It really comes down to just that, that becoming conscious 
about what is it that you can do and doing that. And I really think that, I really think that most of us have showed up on the planet to make a contribution. It's, it's, I think it's in our DNA. We want to help. We want to create something worthwhile. And I think that's why people are attracted to you and your show is because you, you just balls out. I'm just going to freaking do this. You know, I don't care. I can't wait for anybody. I just, it's in my blood. I cannot not do it. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. saying what I'm doing. I can't not, not do what I'm doing. And the more I do it, the more people are going, golly, that's so amazing what you're doing. You know, well, maybe it is, but I'm sorry, I don't have a choice. Well, yeah, and there's also a lot of it won't work, it won't work, it won't work. And, you know, I'll do 10 different things and, and a person will be there. It doesn't, it's not going to work. And then like five of them will massively fail. And that wow. person will be there like the cheerleader of failure, right? I told you that wouldn't work. Well, the other five things did. Yeah, yeah. And if I had listened to you, those things wouldn't have happened. And that's what I want people to do is like, don't be afraid to mess something up, right? Yeah. Now, it, it, with some intelligence, like I have a rule. I don't know electrical work very good at all, okay? So if if something in my house needs to be worked on and it's live power, I get somebody else to do that. Do you know why? I don't want to die, right? <laughs> so until you destroy your property value, ruin the environment, you know, leak tons of mine waste into the river system or something like that. Okay, then, then, then you need to get some expertise, right? Uh, if you're putting in a little garden pond, you can screw that up. The worst thing you do is you fill in a hole. If you're going to put in a one-acre lake, you might want to get some engineering expertise. But in the end, don't let that stop you. You can buy that, right? You can afford a guy to come in that's an engineer and sanity check or a permaculture uh, consultant to come in and say, that's not the right place for a pond. Don't let it slow you down. And that's that's not just permaculture and ponds. It's whatever, anything, a business you want to start. I have people show me an idea for a business. I'm like, I'll, I, I wouldn't buy it. And they're like, well, maybe I shouldn't do it. No, that's why we want to talk to you about it. Like, go do it. You'll figure it out because I could be wrong. I, I was wrong. Dude, I, do you know Power Rangers, right, when that came out? Yeah. Even though I was like a teenager, I'm like, this is the stupidest thing ever, right? This right. isn't going to work. Kids are not this dim-witted. That was a billion dollar industry that I, I still don't understand why it works. I, I don't get it. So like what I think doesn't matter. It's like what you think and what your vision is. That's what matters. Yeah. Cause yeah, I blew that one, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You should have bought some stock in the should have bought some stock, stock whatever industry. company that actually runs that atrocity is. But <laughs> so anyway, we're, we're, we've, we've, we've really knocked down like an hour and a half here. So, can you tell people like how they can find your website, how they can work with you as a consultant, what your educational opportunities are, all that stuff? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people really enjoy what you had to say today. Well, yeah, just so our website shares pretty much everything, MidwestPermaculture.com, pretty pretty straightforward. And um, uh, we're, we're doing um, eight courses this year, and it looks like we might do 10 or 12 next year. So it really is our passion to deliver really powerful design courses. And I, I like them, Jack, because they really take a person's head and, you know, turns it around 360 degrees. It really, you just come out of a course seeing things differently. So I love doing it. Are, are all those PDCs, Bill, or are some of them niche no, things? No, I'm still focusing on the PDC because, number one, it's what we do well, and, number two, it's all the time I have right now. Sure. Um, but I'll tell you, early on, we focused on the PDC because it was a – a tangible item, and we, we we did a lot of smaller things too. But the amount of time it took me to put on a two day training and create the web page, figure it out, market it, <laughs> uh, register people, and all that kind of stuff, um, I made so little money. It was just a huge amount of work, and I didn't make hardly any money. Where the design course is a large ticket item, and so duh, you know, dawned on me 
don't focus on all that little stuff until you become uh, until there's a surplus yeah. you know, that you can share. Um, figure out a way uh, to do design courses really well and give people twice the value of what they're paying for. And most of our students will walk away and say, absolutely, this course was worth twice what I paid for it, if not more. So uh, so anyway, so that's our focus. So we do that, and we do it well, and I still love doing it. And every course I do, it still feels like a new course to me. I can hardly wait to get started. So until that changes, um, you know, we'll do we'll – do, um, we're going to keep doing those. But we are at the point now where Midwest permaculture is growing. Um, we just got three or four people uh, – month-long internship jobs uh, down on our project in southern Missouri in exchange for design course. We got two people hired this year to be full-time permaculturists on other design projects where they needed uh, people to uh, come in and uh, work with the uh, client full-time. So I can see this thing evolving, and Becky and I are just kind of at the point now where we see we're going to slowly have to develop some teams. So um, it's an exciting time. It just occurred to me when I when I bugged you on Skype to come back on. That was one of the things I wanted to talk about, and it's not in the outline here. So, could you maybe, as we finish up here, give people a little bit about what you're doing on a larger scale project? Because for for a, a long time, most of what I saw you actually doing was we would call urban scale permaculture on your property. It was amazing, but you've kind of branched out and you're doing some larger scale projects now. You want to kind of finish up with talking about those? Yeah, it's not a lot. It, they take a lot of time. Uh, so we really have uh, three good-sized projects, or four if I consider the one in my own in my own community, which is seven or eight acres. Uh, so we have four good-sized projects that we're working on, and so it's really uh, we actually have had had to say we really can't handle any more jobs because sure. it's uh, it's really taking a lot of focus. So they're all in their early stages. Two are 25-acre farms, and uh, the other one is a, a, a 320-acre. Uh, part of a 320-acre farm in uh, southern Missouri. And in all three cases, they want to start from the beginning and they want to develop the project. So rather than creating that master design, I created framework designs for them, and then they've hired us on a kind of an annual or renewable annual basis to come in and guide the evolution and the implementation of the design. And so we're hiring people in local areas to come in and and uh, help us cut swales or put in ponds, that kind of thing. But as the uh, project unfolds, uh, it seems like some of these clients are saying, but I'd like to have a full-time permaculture person living here. They want their their locations actually be educational centers at some point. And um, and so that's why the number of courses that we're doing is increasing, because now we got to do a course maybe in West Virginia, one in Youngstown, Ohio, and two or three down in southern uh, Missouri. So it's just it's really exciting, and it wasn't in our in our in our business plan uh, to do this, Jack. It just kind of showed up, and the people that asked us to work with them are kind of on the same wavelength. For them, they say, um, in, in all three cases, these are families or individuals that um, have enough money that they're saying the work is more important than me uh, seeing a return on investment in the next five or ten years. I want to invest in this land. I want to invest in the earthworks. I want to invest in the plants and invest in uh, the infrastructure to create an example and a place where people can come and really learn how to do this themselves. So I'm very fortunate that I've got those kinds of uh, clients. And then they said, and I, Bill, I want you, you know, I want you and Becky to guide us or work with us. So we feel incredibly blessed and uh, fortunate to be able to do this kind of work and, and, um, and, and money is, um, you know, we have to be careful. You can't be crazy about it. But at the same time, if it's important, 
uh, they've been able to say, let's do it. And uh, so it's pretty exciting. And I, my one caution with that, because I think that's that's the way forward in permaculture. That it's so unproven that we need people that can do that to get it proven before people are willing to make the investment and wait on a return. Because you don't put you know money in your retirement account when you're 20 and say, what you know, I want it all back at 21 and I want it to be worth you know my whole retirement. You understand it takes time. Um, but with that said, property selection is the biggest thing I've learned. How effing critical. That is, because we see people do things like greening the desert and whatever, and it can be done. It's a great showcase, but boy, it's a lot harder, and it takes a lot more money, and it takes a lot more time. And, I mean, good soils, water, access, structure, those things to me are just uber critical to make sure that the investment is being put into the right place. I would never pick my personal property as a commercial property, though we're making it work anyway. Right, but it's because we have the time. It's because we have a different source of income, what have you. You, you, you really got to make sure you do a good property selection. I think you'd agree. That's also something that is invaluable with a consultant. That a good consultant could say, "Not this place. This is not the place for you to do this." Well, it's also in, in these uh, absolutely, and in, in all in all three of these uh, other situations, um, the individuals involved uh, all realize that. You know, when you create a legacy, uh, the first generation puts in the infrastructure and creates the foundation. The second generation improves it and evolves and develops it. The third generation either uh, squatters it or they improve upon it even further. <laughs> so they all, they all know that, you know, based on the way we've uh, dealt with the land, the way the land had been treated in these cases, all the, all the land had been really abused, um, they know it's going to take years to uh, put it in, and they say, "I don't care." Yeah, it's worth it to me. I need to give something back, and this is the way I want to give back. I want to create natural capital, and um, and they feel they feel blessed to be able to uh, spend money in uh, improving their property, and I feel honored to be able to work with them, and they're paying me to do it too. So it's you know, it's but I take it's a huge responsibility. I mean. I, I lay awake at night thinking about these projects. Yeah, know. I understand that. I know when I started getting emails, when I started doing this podcast, it was just a thing I did in my car. And yeah. I would get emails with people telling me we're doing this, this, and this because you said so. I said, ooh, ooh I got to be really careful about what I say because, you know, I, especially at the time, I was doing a lot of things off the cuff because I was, you know, yeah. passing people at 70 miles an hour while I was doing the show. Yeah, so, uh, you start to like see the responsibility, or in consulting and design, or in like I did a lot of business consulting, and I always try to do it with the thought of if this was my business, and yet you still have to have a little bit of that surgeon mentality, right? I know what yeah. I'm doing, and this is what needs to be done. Yep. You got to balance it, man. Well, hey, man, you're, you're definitely one of the guys making things happen out there. I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Again, the, the website, MidwestPermaculture.com, uh, you know, and we do a PDC, and I, I, I still can't recommend yours high enough. I think it's awesome, and it's something people especially that are anywhere near you or where you're doing one should take a look at. And uh, you also do a lot of really great stuff that you put out on, on your site and your YouTube channel, so people should check that out, too. I'll make sure there's links to all that in the show notes. And thank you for being with us here today, Bill, and thank you for the work that you do. You, you bet, Jack. It's a total pleasure visiting with you again. Let's do it again sometime. All right, all right folks. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Bill Wilson. And uh, as I've been doing, I'm going to keep bringing new music to you, or new old music mostly. This is a pretty old song. This goes back to, gee, I don't know when this came out, but I'm pretty sure it was either before I was in the Army or during the time I was in the Army. So that's that's a very, very, very long time ago. 
It's by a group called Pirates of the Mississippi, and the song is called Feed Jake. And I think a lot of people that have heard this song from years ago or heard it when it first came out, and it was quite popular, just thought, well, it's a song about a guy's dog. And it is. It's a song about a guy's dog. But it's also about a hell of a lot more. It's about society and how we treat each other. And I've always loved this song, and I've been waiting for the right episode to play it. And this is the one, because that's the biggest thing that we talked about with Bill today, how to treat each other. How to work together for good rather than, rather than work against each other. Um, if, if we continue to see each other as enemies, if we continue to write other people off as worthless, you'll hear that, you'll hear that word in this song, then the people in charge stay in charge. Bill mentioned today, you know, somebody thought it was a good idea economically too. And the people that produce the money, not to produce the profit, to produce the money, that print the money. They thought it was economically a good idea because it allowed them to print more money for themselves because that's how they make money. They print it and keep some. And uh, that might be an oversimplification, but if you listen to my, some of my shows on the economy, especially the early ones, you'll learn exactly how that works out. But this song, the, 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 the line in it that I really wanted you guys to hear, uh, because so many of you are, are coming to this point, And many of you through, at least partly through this show, I'm standing at the crossroads in life, and I don't know which way to go. And, you know, he, he says, you've got my heart, babe, but my, my music's got my soul, is the next line in the song. But, you know, music is, is metaphorical in many ways. It is not meant to be interpreted a single way, and, and that can be... That can be interpreted many ways. There's, there's many times that we feel we need to do one thing, but our true soul, our true sense of purpose drags us to another way. And it, this song, really, if you listen to all the words in it, will probably take on a new meaning for you today with that context. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Bill Wilson, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. I'm standing at the crossroads in life And I don't know where to go You know you got my heart, babe But my music's got my soul Let me play it one more time Tell the truth and make it around And hope they understand me Now I lay me down to sleep I pray the Lord my soul to keep If I die before I wake Feed Jake, he's been a good dog My best friend Right through it all If I die before I wake VJ Now Broadway's like a sewer Bums and hookers everywhere Wine old past out on the sidewalk Doesn't anybody care Say he's worthless, just let him be I for one would have to disagree 
Yeah. 